Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I want to welcome you to uh, Capitol Hill briefing entitled Cutting Wasteful Spending in the Trump Administration. I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And again, I want to thank you all for coming. Um, a quick reminder before we begin, uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, we are live streaming this. Um, we'd love to hear from you, so please tweet short and appropriate questions to us or the Senator at hashtag Cato events. Uh, we got a lot to get through today, so I'm just going to start with the introductions. And our first speaker today, of course, all the way from Constitutional, Constitution Avenue, is Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. After serving four years here in the House of Representatives, uh, James was elected to the U.S. Senate in November of 2014 to finish the remaining two years of retiring Senator Tom Coburn's term. As a member of the U.S. Senate, Lankford sits on the Senate Committee on Appropriations and on Homeland Security and Government Affairs. Uh, where he chairs a subcommittee on regulatory affairs and federal management. Like his predecessor, he has waged tireless war against unnecessary and burdensome regulation and advocates for a more restrained federal government. This week marks the release of his new white paper entitled Federal Fumbles, 100 Ways the Government Dropped the Ball, Volume 2. So all of us at one point or another have made the variant, some variant on the joke, only 100 because I think we can all identify more than that, but uh, at any rate, this is a terrific and amusing contribution to the vast literature of federal boondoggles and misspent priorities. Um, we are delighted to have him come and talk, and if you want copies of this, uh, you can get them at www.langford.senate.gov. But without further ado, Senator James Langford. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, you don't have to clap on it, so that's fine. Uh, y'all enjoy your lunch. I want to get a chance to do a qu couple of quick quick brief statements about the book, what we're trying to accomplish with it, and what is unique about it. And then I want to be able to open this up for questions, and let's have some dialogue and some of the solutions. One of the things that we try to do is we look at the, the issues that we really face, $19.5 trillion in total debt, over half a uh, trillion dollars in deficit spending for a single year, even this year. This is something that has to be addressed. Unfortunately, most of the presidential debate and a lot of the debates and the elections around the country didn't circle around debt this year. Uh, it was a, a missing element in the conversation. In fact, it was the fourth presidential debate between the three presidential debates and the vice presidential debate towards the end of the fourth presidential debate before a question ever came up about debt and deficit. The problem has not gone away. The solutions are also still there as well. So to give you a quick picture of what we're looking at and what I try to try to keep in perspective, there is no plan. There's nothing that I've seen out there from anyone that gets us back to balance in a single year. What we face at this point is serious. This is not a car loan. This is a jumbo mortgage, to say the least. It will take us five to 10 years with hard work, with focused effort, just to get us back to balance, where we're not adding to debt. But then it's the matter of what do you do to be able to work down debt after that? So I, I give just the figure. If we take the budget numbers we did uh, from last year, do a 10-year fade out of deficit to get us back to balance. If we get back to balance in 10 years, the very next year, uh, we were to have a $50 billion surplus. It's not a bad surplus to have. We had a $50 billion surplus. How many years in a row would we have to maintain that $50 billion surplus before we paid off our debt? The correct answer is 460 years in a row. If we had a budget surplus for 460 years in a row of $50 billion, we would pay off our debt. This is one of many reasons I try to raise some of these issues to say we cannot just ignore what's happening. As interest payments tick up, and they will tick up, we will face our interest payments as a country higher than our defense payments within the next 10 years. That's not some pie-in-the-sky estimate. That's CBO's estimate, that within the next 10 years, we will pay more on interest on our debt than we pay for total defense spending. What I'm trying to raise is this is a serious issue. There are some solutions to it, but we better get started on it. So we break up the book really in, in two different ways. We break it up basically uh, large, medium, and small. And you're right, this is not comprehensive on government loss and waste. Uh, this is examples of the areas. So both large, medium, and small. But we also break it up into different areas where we look at not only the different agencies, but is this a grant area? Is this a regulatory issue that we're facing? Is this a lack of coordination or a duplication in agency? Or is it just agency inefficiency? and to try to be able to take a broad look at it. This book is a little bit different in, in a couple of ways. One is we don't just look at spending. We also look at the actions of the agencies and of what's happening here on Capitol Hill. We look at regulations. We look at the way th that the agencies actually operate and function as well and be able to do a, a broad look. 
The other thing is, is that as we walk through this, it's our rule. We can't put out one of the problems without also, without also putting out a solution. So for us, we can all sit around at breakfast and complain about the problems, but our job is to find the solutions to it. So for every single one of these issues, we actually raise a solution to it as well. Here's how you can resolve this. Some, some of these things are as large and as complicated as USDA and the $30 billion in the last five years they've had in improper payments. Uh, you would hope that that would go down because that's been raised year after year. This year's improper payment rate is higher than last year's uh, improper payment rate. So it continues to go up. Uh, some of those are issues. Uh, one of my favorites is the way the USDA is actually engaging with the SNAP program itself. There was a hope that people would get healthier food on the SNAP program, and so it's not just a limitation on the type of food you can get with the SNAP program, but it's now also the locations that you can actually get that food as well. And they're working to be able to promulgate a set of rules saying if, for instance, if 15% of your total sales in your business is from hot foods, then you can also provide SNAP foods. So if you're in a convenience store in a rural area or in a food desert in an urban area and you also provide hot foods, USDA wants to come in and see your books and to be able to look at how much money you make to be able to determine if 15% of your money is also made from uh, hot foods. That should be none of their business, quite frankly, uh, to be able to determine that. But also it's an issue of they want to see the number of varieties increased. It's not just milk and bread and eggs and meat. They also now want convenience stores to also sell tofu, almond milk, fresh shrimp, fresh catfish. I don't know how many of you go down to your local convenience store to pick up some fresh shrimp and tofu, but that's not something that's common in most areas, especially in rural areas. So what's the result of that? The result of that is they're creating a SNAP program that if you're in a rural area of America, that convenience store is also the gas station, is also uh, the, the, the restaurant and many times is the only grocery store often for 30 miles. They're telling that location, I'm sorry, if you're on the SNAP program and you already need assistance, now you're going to have to drive 30 miles farther to go get it. It's nonsensical, uh, the way they work through the process. There's also studies in here, and grants are always our favorite studies to be able to look at because grants are those moments that we all slow down and say, I'm so glad I paid tax dollars for that. Uh, grants like the grant from the NIH to study whether five to eight-year-old children will still eat food if someone sneezes on it first. Glad you paid for that. Uh, there was also a study that was done uh, this past year by the National Science Foundation where they wanted to write an extensive paper on glaciers and on climate change, but to write it from a distinctly feminist point of view, saying that we could better understand climate change and glacier changes if we looked at it through a feminist lens. Now, I'm not quite sure how the feminist lens affects climate change and glacier movement, but you paid half a million dollars for that study. As we look at the different studies, we ask the question, how do you solve this? The first issue that I look at is we look at, at options. Let's put a framework around uh, how we do grants. $650 billion a year now go out of the federal treasury every year just on grants. Agencies have found it easier to be able to do grants than they do through contracting, and so since the process is simpler, they're shifting more and more to grants to be able to get the money out the door to the things they want to be able to accomplish. Across the board, the agencies don't have a consistent process of oversight, and many agencies will have billions of dollars, and they will then delegate how those grants are, are done to some volunteer group that comes in to be able to maintain that without a clear set of boundaries. That's a recipe for disaster. Don't give a clear set of boundaries and give someone else's money. That's a way to be able to give away lots of money to lots of random things. So when we see all these different grant things that come up, the first question is, how did that happen? How do we put boundaries around it to be able to make sure that doesn't happen again? It happens both in domestic aid and it happens in foreign aid. Are you aware that last year you helped do an extensive research study in Iceland on grave sites from the 8th century to the 12th century? Good use of your dollars, obviously. Uh, you also did a study of fish bones in Tanzania to be able to evaluate old fish bones in burial sites in Tanzania. Again, uh, who knows where that goes from there. To make it even more recent, last year Congress approved dollars dealing with immigration issues in Central America. We're all very aware on the immigration issues. More than half of the illegal immigration issues that we have in the United States are now coming from three countries in Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. So we're really dealing with two border issues. 
the border between Guatemala and Mexico, between Mexico and the United States. So there was additional dollars that were allocated to go towards Central America to try to deal with corruption in that area, government corruption, to deal with economic development, and also be able to deal with violence, the major push factors out of that for illegal immigration in the United States. Makes sense. Here's the problem. The administration diverted over $50 billion of that money that was set aside there for climate change work in Central America as well. Now, I'm not sure how climate change affects illegal immigration, but apparently the immigration believes that it does. And so dollars that were allocated to violence, government corruption, and economic development were actually used for climate change instead. All of these I look at as issues and say there should be clear boundaries, there should be clear guidelines and how we actually process it. So let me just hit a couple ideas with you and let me open this up for a question. I already mentioned the way that we have to do grants. We have to reform the process of grants and to be able to have real oversight for that. The second thing that we need to be able to do is to be able to deal with duplication. You've got to be able to see it. We have a bill called the Taxpayer's Right to Know, which those folks on the House of Representatives side of the world have passed unanimously this year. Over on the Senate side, things run a little slower. I don't know if you notice that. The Senate is known as a place where good bills go to die. The House passes it unanimously. It's still a struggle over in the Senate to be able to get it done. The taxpayer's right to know is not a Republican bill or a Democrat bill. It's a bureaucracy bill. It asks the simple question of every agency. Can you list every program that your agency does, how much you spend on that program, how many staff you allocate to that program, how many people you serve with that program, and if you evaluate it, how you evaluate it. None of those things are complicated. Every program should do those things automatically, but the agencies do not. We cannot find duplication in government because most often to identify duplication in government involves doing a GAO study, which takes about 18 months to be able to get the most basic information. And while GAO does a terrific job, for a question as basic as is there duplication on this type of program should be something you could Google in 18 seconds rather than do a GAO study for 18 months. So we're trying to get just a basic list out there of all the items that are out there. When that happens, every outside group could take a look at it and say, are you aware we do 100 different programs in the federal government on mental health? 100. We call that in this book the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again. 100 different programs just on mental health from the federal government. The only way you can see that, again, is doing that GO study, or we pass the taxpayer's right to know, and so everyone can search it, look at it, evaluate it, and not just evaluate how much duplication is there, find out which one is more effective than the other one. Then we can feed the lion. We can say that one's the most effective. Let's make sure we're funding that one. These 20 are not as effective. Let's set those aside. That's a basic thing that we can do. The big issue that we can take on is budget reform. In 1974, right after Watergate, Congress came up with a new plan for how we do budgeting. Since 1974, that budget plan has worked exactly four times. Every single year, we say the same thing. How come the budget process didn't work again? This is now our 20th year in a row to do a continuing resolution. The budget process itself is broken. The budget process itself is not a constitutional change, it's a congressional change. And there are a few things that are different from the 1970s. Looking around the guys that are sitting here, your ties are not the same as they are in the 1970s, and I'm proud of you for that. So there are a few things that have changed. We should readdress the budget process to make sure that we can have a budget process that begins by putting everything on the table every two years. That we do a two-year cycle gives us more time to be able to do oversight of the process, but it actually puts all of it, all $3.7 uh, $3 trillion on the table every two years. Realigning our committees. The authorizing appropriating battle that happens here is one of the nerdiest battles in the country. I'm sorry, that's not authorized, and that's appropriate. No one outside of this hill cares. We should realign that whole process to be able to say what we authorize, we appropriate as well, and if and our appropriating or authorizing lines up. Those are straightforward things that will take a massive shift in thinking here. But if we're ever going to get at the debt and deficit issues, we're going to have to get a better process or we'll never get a better product. So I would encourage your reading on this. Uh, you can get a chance to flip through it. You can see it online at langford.senate.gov. Uh, you can go through it. You can uh, pick and choose. We've got it color-coded, what's regulatory and what's spending as you walk through it and get a chance to see your favorites. Uh, you'll have different favorites than some of the favorites that I highlighted on it. Again, it's not comprehensive, but it's a set of ideas, and it's a beginning point to see the type of waste that we're dealing with and then a set of solutions. If you have different solutions on this, bring them but let's get it solved at the end.
Let me open this up for questions. Try to be nervous when the microphone comes towards you as well. It's just broadcasting to billions of people around the earth. So <laughs> you're up. Uh, David Lerman from CQ. How much money are you actually saying could be saved if these recommendations were followed? Th this set of recommendations, it's hard to be able to track that. We have about $247 billion that are just listed in this. Some of those are multi-year, like I mentioned before with the USDA. That's $30 billion over five years. So in typical Washington speak, it's hard to be able to get an exact number. We didn't try to be comprehensive with all waste in all areas. Uh, that we could gather. That would be a different report we're trying to do. We're trying to just give ideas on this. So this is not a list trying to say, here's all waste in the federal government. If only we eliminated this, we would save X amount of dollars. So, but we have identified $247 billion in this report. Let me just follow up. Sure. Let me get the microphone back to you. I mean, just to follow up, I mean, I think a lot of budget experts say we have these soaring entitlement costs that are driving up the deficits. Congress never likes to deal with entitlement reform, so we're talking about some bogus studies going on that don't really add up to big money. It isn't, I mean, is this really, I mean, why focus on symbolic stuff? Why not go after the, where the, the real money is to, to get deficits under control? So I would encourage you to be able to read the report. We have, for instance, the Medicaid issues that are in here, $142 billion in improper payments in Medicaid. Uh, last year's report, we highlighted a lot of those entitlement issues that we talked about before. These are issues that are different than we did in last year's studies. But you're correct. And you go through the budget proposal that I just laid out, $3.7 trillion to get that on the table. That means you've got to get every two years your entitlement focus and your discretionary all at the same time on the table every two years. The issue that Congress has on dealing with all the mandatory spending is that we never touch it, we never look at it. It starts on autopilot again, and the next time we look at it is 30 years from now. If you put that on the table every two years, then there's a moment every two years Congress can reevaluate, are we on the right track, does it need to be readjusted? So I think that's the best way to do it, and that's one of the solutions I was listing uh, when I was talking through the things earlier. What else? We'll get microphones around to you. Whoever you want to stand there, go ahead. We'll take an order as we're going around the room. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, so a lot of the... The, the deficit in fiscal year 09 was close to about 10% of the GDP, and now it's at about 3%. So we have seen some successes in terms of addressing that debt. How do you reconcile that? So this, uh, the deficit in 2009, if I'm remembering correctly, was about uh, $300 billion, somewhere 250 to $300 billion. It's $550 billion now. And so while we've seen some change in that, what we've really seen is an increase in spending. The only way that we're going to get on top of this is increase economic activity and control our spending. Until we actually work our way back to balance and start knocking down our debt, all we're doing every year is adding to it. The single biggest clicking, or, I'm sorry, ticking time bomb that we're facing is interest rates. Our interest payments now are about $230 billion a year. You go back 10 years ago, we were spending $200 billion a year in interest. Our debt is twice as large, and our interest payments are the same because the interest rates are down. As they start ticking up, that number moves from 220 and 30 billion to 800 billion in a hurry in interest. Total discretionary budgets just over a trillion dollars. It is very likely in the days ahead our interest payments will be more than the national defense and will approach almost all of our discretionary spending every single time. Yeah, it's a great question there. It's, it's how do I anticipate President Donald Trump will, will address this? That's the great unknown. Because this wasn't discussed during the presidential debates and because it wasn't really discussed by either party during the campaign trail, we don't know how it will be addressed. Here's the first optimistic piece I have, though. When they're going through the agencies and the transition right now, one of the things the transition team is doing is they're looking at the agency top to bottom to see which positions don't need to be there and which departments don't need to be there. That's a significant amount of work. But if you start in the executive branch looking at those agencies and saying we can't afford to do this, that gives me some optimism that they're going to take on some of the other issues as well. But we'll all find out somewhere around the 21st of January. It was right back there. Trump will make several, Trump will make several thousand appointments, some of which will be in position to start cutting and chopping and reducing and consolidating. What do you suggest are some of the better appointments or places that he can put people 
to start affecting some of these reductions? There's not a bad spot to go find and put people to start dealing with uh, waste in government. There's no single agency to say this one's the worst. There's, there's, there's fat in all of them, as there is on Capitol Hill as well. Uh, OMB is one of the areas that I would say, in a strange way, especially in OIRA, that we need to increase some of the staffing so that we can oversee some of the regulations that are actually happening there. Because there is no narrow part of the funnel that's really working. The 70 or so people that work in OIRA, that needs to be beefed up and they need to actually be able to do their job. So I would look at State Department, I would look at uh, DOD, I would look at Department of Labor, I would look at Education, I would look at Ag, I would look all over, all over Washington and ask the simple question as you go through what's affectionately called the plum book here, if you're not familiar with the quote-unquote plum jobs uh, that are in Washington of the 3,000 or so political appointee jobs, and ask the question, does that job need to exist? Does that department need to exist? Can it be consolidated? And how do you deal with duplication? I don't, I don't know that there's not a fear to cut DOD. I think it's the inefficiency in DOD. I've yet to run into someone at the Pentagon that you can walk up to them and say, is this the most efficient place you've ever worked, that they would say yes. <laughs> okay, so that, that's a given. Whether it's the hiring, whether it's the efficiency of the bureaucracy, whether it's procurement, which has been a disaster for us, all of those issues need to be addressed. The emphasis is how it actually gets done. Where frankly, the, one of my favorite stories from Cheney, uh, when he was vice president, in the early days of his vice presidency, ordered a review of the Pentagon to determine how it structures to see if they can restructure it. So he ordered a flow chart to be created of the Pentagon. He was called in when they took him a couple of months to do it. When they created the flow chart in the Pentagon, they went into the cabinet room that everybody's seen the pictures of, put the flow chart on the table, it rolled across the entire table and flipped across the ends. They stood over for a couple hours and stared at this flow chart, and Cheney rolled it back up and said, it would take more than eight years to fix this. And he's correct. But you have to look at strategic areas. If you do not have leaders in place in those entities saying, here's how we can fix this and pushing it back towards Congress, it's easy to hide it. Duplication and waste is not hard to hide. It goes back to one of my favorite philosophers, Muhammad Ali. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. The hands can't hit what the eyes can't see. And if the agencies can hide it, it's hard for Congress to hit it. You've got to have people on both sides of it trying to go after it. Sorry, a couple questions right here. Let me take two more. I'm stealing everybody else's time here. Thank you. Um, I'm Diego. I go to George Washington University. My question is, how would you best explain to young people um, how the national debt and the deficit affect them? Because for a lot of my classmates, it's not really budget reform is very high on the list of priorities, and they don't really care much about it. Sure. All right, so the, the easiest way to be able to explain why this matters is to be able to ask the simple question. We have $3.7 trillion in total federal spending. We have the highest amount of tax revenue ever collected by the federal treasury last year, ever. And they would keep talking about the down economy. We've never collected more in the federal treasury ever than what happened last year. Why are we still short of money? What is the long-term result of that? And the easiest way that I have to explain it is if your grandparents maxed out their credit cards, and only made the minimum payments. And then when they passed, they passed it on to your parents who maxed out their credit cards and was making the minimum payments for your grandparents and then making their minimum payments. And then they passed away and handed to you your grandparents' minimum payments, your parents' minimum payments. Then you maxed out your credit cards and you're also making your minimum payments. Eventually, you can't make your house payment. Eventually, you can't get a new car. You, you've got to do less because you're making the minimum payments for your grandparents and for your parents. That's where we are, and it's coming quickly when we spend $800 billion a year just in interest payments. We can't afford to do anything else. And that's the area where we're getting to very, very quickly. So let me take one last question. Yes, ma'am, right over there. Sorry. What is your strategy uh, in confronting budget reform in the lame duck session? I don't know that we're going to get budget reform in the lame duck session. I would love to get it. What we're going to try to do is to be able to piecemeal bits and pieces. I don't see a big 1974 budget act coming down the, down the pike that everyone's going to agree and do this big, massive change all at once. I think over the course of several years, we're going to, have to just be able to pick at it. Who we have on board is a great group of folks. This was about six or seven of us two years ago that started the process on budget reform. 
Mike Enzi is fully on board, who's the chairman of the Budget Committee in the Senate, uh, though this would have dramatic effects on his own chairmanship uh, to be able to change how that actually functions. Uh, we have multiple members of the freshman class of the Senate that are fully on board with that, as well as Tom Price, who has now ran off to run HHS. But he did, he was the chairman of the Budget Committee in the House. He was also fully on board on this. Uh, we have now conversations with Mitch McConnell uh, and with Paul Ryan uh, that are saying this is not just about a change of behavior anymore, this has to be about a change of process. So we've worked to actually build the coalitions, including reaching across the aisle. Because when you talk about putting this whole thing on the table, that's going to take Republicans and Democrats alike agreeing this is a revenue-neutral way to make it fair to be able to look at the budget process, but to actually be able to deal with this. Sure. Is there anything regarding earmark spending on that as well? No, we, we don't have anything on this regarding earmark spending. I understand that the House wants to reopen that conversation. I can't imagine that conversation goes anywhere, quite frankly. Uh, the earmark spending is not so much about should Congress be in control of spending. Yes, they should. The earmark conversation is really about earmarks were really sweeteners for bad bills. Uh, if you can hold out and say, if you really want that, hang on to it, because I'm going to have a bill that you're not going to like later, and I'll stick it into that, uh, that's a whole different way of doing business. Uh, so, yes, Congress should have the purse strings. No, there should not be a way to be able to encourage people to vote for bad legislation based on it's their favorite pet project locked into it. So sausage should not have that spice in it. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to be in this conversation. And we have a lot of things to be able to solve. As I mentioned in this, we have some solutions laid out. As you go through it and you see other solutions, contact us. Uh, because I'm not locked into the set of solutions we have. I'm locked into actually solving it. Uh, thank you again, Senator Lankford. I appreciate that a lot. Um, I'll do some quick introductions and we'll begin part two of this panel here. Uh, Thomas A. Schatz is president of Citizens Against Government Waste, uh, formerly, or colloquially known, colloquially known as CAGW. CAGW works to eliminate waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement in government. Mr. Schatz is a nationally recognized spokesperson on government waste and has been interviewed on hundreds of radio talk shows from coast to coast. He is a regularly featured guest on national television news programs and local news broadcasts, and his editorials on fiscal policy have appeared in publications nationwide, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, in fact, funny enough, the Hill newspaper cited CAGW for its leading role in successfully pushing for the congressional earmark moratorium, which was identified as one of the top ten lobbying victories of 2010. Uh, next uh, will be Justin Bogie, who is a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. There he studies and reports on budgetary issues, spending, and government waste. Uh, this fall he served as a budget policy analyst at Donald J. Trump for President Incorporated, and there he helped develop the candidates' comprehensive fiscal policy and individual budget proposals. Uh, prior to all of this, he spent almost four years as a budget analyst here in the House at the Budget Committee and he received his master's degree in public administration from Auburn University. And finally is Chris Edwards, who is the editor of downsizinggovernment.org. He is a top expert on federal and state tax and budget issues. Before joining Cato, Edwards was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee and an economist with the Tax Foundation. Edwards has testified to Congress on fiscal issues many times, and his work has appeared in all the major newspapers. He is the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. Uh, they'll each speak for about eight minutes. Can we go to eight? Um, and then we'll open it up and for questions at the end. So I will have a housekeeping announcement at the very end. But for now, let's please welcome Tom Schatz. Thank you, Peter. And I do want to thank Senator Langford and his staff in their absence for putting together such a wonderful publication. It's always good to have examples like this to open up larger issues related to what are really systemic failures and gross mismanagement inside the federal government. Uh, the senator mentioned something that reminded me of a question that President Reagan asked Peter Grace when he was establishing the Grace Commission. Uh, President Reagan said that when he was governor of California, he noticed a lot of federal offices throughout the state. And he asked Peter Grace, the 160 senior corporate executives, the 2,000 volunteers, to find out how many people in California worked for the federal government. Well, they spent a year and a half going through every federal agency, putting together a comprehensive report known as the Grace Commission Report. They never got an answer to that question. 
So this Taxpayer Bill of Rights, the idea that agencies should simply list what they're doing and what's going on would make it a lot easier for people to know. We can, as Senator Lankford said, find out everything else about everything except those kinds of questions. In Senator Lankford's report, and he mentioned this, $142.7 billion in Medicaid improper payments since 2009. Well, those payments uh, actually went up by 50 percent between 2012 and 2015, and we certainly agree that sh there should be greater program integrity and the whole system really needs to be overhauled. But Medicaid is only the second largest source of improper payments. Medicare is number one. And since 2010, improper payments across the federal government totaled nearly $600 billion. Ninety percent of them were overpayments. In fiscal year 2015, 75 percent of the improper payments came from three agencies, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Social Security Administration, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Senator Lankford already mentioned the $80 billion on improper payments from 18 programs at USDA, but what he didn't mention is that the school breakfast program has an improper payment rate of 22.95 percent. That's almost a quarter of the payments being made improperly. And there are many existing remedies for improper payments. The House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform reported and re made a report on October 16, 2016, and said that agencies should do more to ensure the accuracy of their data, act on the recommendations made by their inspectors general. There is a do not pay business center at the Department of Treasury which is supposed to catch improper payments before they are made and they need to do more and they need to be expanded and OMB needs to improve its government-wide reporting on improper payments. Now the Trump administration should make it very clear that these unimplemented recommendations should be done as soon as possible to recover not only the money that has been overpaid but to prevent more money from going out the door and not being paid back. Senator Lankford's report also exposes numerous examples of the government's technological ineptitude. More than $55 billion, or 68 percent of the $80 billion spent annually on information technology, goes to support legacy systems, some of which are more than 50 years old. It's not anything any of us have really ever seen, let alone could use, and probably wouldn't even fit in this room. The Department of Defense still uses eight-inch floppy disks to run a computer system that controls nuclear weapons. The Treasury Department uses a 1960s computer code to catalog taxpayers. The Office of Management and Budget processes federal retirement benefits on paper and has not been able to use an electronic system despite 30 years of trying to do so. The Department of Homeland Security was created from 22 different agencies, which had 22 different human resources programs, and they are still not working together. $180 million spent since 2005, and little progress has been made. The Government Accountability Office since 2011 has made more than 800 recommendations for agencies to update their technology. Only 32 percent of them had been implemented by the end of October 2015. Now, given the billions of dollars wasted on failed IT projects, fixing these problems as soon as possible should be a high priority for the incoming Trump administration. Now, Senator Lankford talked about overlapping and duplicative programs, and he has certainly talked about this in various committees, uh, and some of those examples appear in federal fumbles. The federal government, he already mentioned the mental illness program, so I won't mention those again, but I will mention the IRS has nine separate overlapping programs that are intended to prevent tax fraud, which is one of the reasons why hundreds of billions of dollars is not collected from taxpayers every year. The Department of Defense operates two health care plans at a cost of more than $1 billion annually that accomplish exactly the same purpose. Since 2011, GAO has made 636 recommendations in these annual reports on duplication and overlap. The Congress and the executive branch has, have achieved $56 billion in savings over the past five years, but 41 percent of all of the recommendations have not been acted upon at all, and only 13 percent of the recommendations from 2015 have been addressed. This, again, is easy for the Trump administration to do. Act on the recommendations as soon as possible if they require executive action, and keep pushing Congress to act on those that they need to implement. And one of the more egregious examples of wasteful spending in federal fumbles is the Delta Regional Authority. It was created in 2000 to help and do what exactly what it sounds like, help create jobs and improve economic uh, development down in the Mississippi Delta states. 
But Congress has earmarked more than $30 million for this project, for this authority, since 2003, including more than $10 million in the current fiscal year. Again, something that should not be done should be relatively easy, and I certainly appreciate Senator Lankford's comments on earmarks because President-elect Trump should make it very clear that he will not sign a single bill with a single earmark. President Obama made that same pledge in 2011. And even though Citizens Against Government Waits continues to find earmarks in the appropriations bills, even under our definition, there's far less than there used to be. President-elect has made the following comments, among others, about government spending. I will ask that savings be accomplished through common sense reforms that eliminate government waste and budget gimmicks and that project hard-earned benefits for America. Maybe Jason wrote that, but that's what he said. He also said we are going to ask every department head in government to provide, to provide a list of wasteful spending projects that we can eliminate in my first 100 days. The politicians have talked about it, and I'm going to do it. A good place to start would be federal fumbles. CAJW's prime cuts, the Congressional Pig Book, recommendations from Cato, Heritage, and, and many, many others. Prime cuts alone make 618 recommendations that would save $644.1 billion in one year and $2.6 trillion over five years. The report addresses every area of government spending, including programs like the Market Access Program, which spends $200 million a year to help agricultural producers promote U.S. products overseas. This is a prime example of corporate welfare. These companies could well afford to do this on their own. Prime Cuts also includes long-standing recommendations to eliminate programs like the sugar, dairy, and peanut programs, replace the $1 bill with the $1 coin, and increase the use of software asset management tools, because many agencies either overuse or underuse the software licenses that they receive. The number and scope of all of these recommendations is more than sufficient to put a large dent in the waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement in the federal government. And let me just reiterate the word mismanagement, because it doesn't matter if there's a deficit or if there's a surplus. No one likes anybody mismanaging their money. If your financial advisor mismanages your money, you find somewhere else. Uh, taxpayers really don't have a choice, but they should be getting better management of their hard-earned money here in Washington, D.C. The Trump administration can draw from these sources to eliminate waste not only in the first 100 days, but throughout the entire term of the president-elect. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, for my portion of the panel, I'm going to sort of talk about some of the proposals uh, that now President-elect Trump made during the course of the campaign, uh, talk about some of the prospects for those act actually being implemented, and then maybe some things that Congress could look to do now and, and in the next few years to, uh, to actually you know, start the process of, of getting this problem under control. Uh, just first of all, I'd like to sort of reiterate some of the things we've already talked about, and, and I certainly applaud Senator Lankford and, and Citizens Against Government Waste uh, for keeping these issues in the forefront. It's really something, you know, it's, it's such a major thing, the budget debt deficit, uh, it's such a major issue, but nobody really talks about it. It's not one of the, you know, so, sort of sexy things to talk about, and so it, it just doesn't get the attention that it should, and so it's good that they're uh, holding the feet to the fire. And at, at Heritage this year, we uh, did a three-part uh, blueprint series, um, and we actually developed our own federal budget, and uh, within that, we had about $90 uh, billion in savings that could be implemented just this year, um, over 100 uh, areas where, where we could look for those savings. So just to sort of reiterate the size of the problem, as uh, Senator Lankford mentioned, uh, soon debt's going to reach over $20 trillion. That's gross federal debt. Debt held by the public uh, will be uh, estimated to be over $15 trillion at the end of 2017. And, uh, Back in July, CBO projected that by uh, 2033, uh, the debt held by the public will actually exceed the uh, size of the entire economy. So this is a major problem. And I think the stat that Senator, Senator Lankford threw out about, you know, even if we had a surplus of $50 billion, it would take 460 years to pay off the debt. I mean, that, that's pretty amazing. So um, as we've also mentioned, biggest drivers of debt are health care, Social Security, um, all these other so-called autopilot uh, spending programs right now they make up about two-thirds of the budget and you know, within not not too many years um, if things are left unchanged they're going to overtake all revenues so the problem is just growing and, and we really need to start thinking about doing something now 
Another major concern that we mentioned is the uh, pace of interest on the debt, that, that how that's rising. It's exploding. Um, within the next 10 years or so, it's actually going to, uh, for, we're going, going to be spending more on interest payments than national defense. So that's kind of another scary thing to uh, think about. Uh, and, and CBOs warned repeatedly through their uh, budget outlook and, and updates that this is a major problem and it will have uh, negative consequences if we don't do something to create the, uh, to correct the path uh, very soon. So just to sort of dive into some of the things that uh, now President-elect Trump has, has talked about on the on the campaign and and we'll, we'll see if they actually come to fruition but he uh, didn't do a whole lot of specific uh, proposals on on debt deficit that kind of thing but there were some that, that were mentioned in speeches and and some of these are, are none of them are really new proposals but uh, so, so one thing that he talked about was a, a penny plan. This is an idea that's been around for several years now. And the way that his penny plan proposal worked was uh, basically all non-defense discretionary uh, funding and then non-entitlement, non-healthcare, Social Security, uh, veteran spending, you would basically cut by 1% each year. And so that, that's one way to get out of it. Uh, this is something that Mike Enzi, Mark Sanford, uh, they had a bill earlier this year. so. That's been around a while. It has it has some support. Uh, the biggest concern in terms of Mr. Trump's proposal would be that it doesn't go after entitlement spending, and and obviously there's that's a, a hot political issue, uh, not good for a presidential campaign probably. But you're really limiting yourself and the size of the pot when you don't at least take a look at entitlement spending. So. Uh, other proposals, Heritage has proposed a statutory cap on all spending that you could enforce by sequestration. Uh, longer term, something that could be looked at would be a balanced budget amendment, uh, but that's, the advantage of that is it can't be modified. Congress wouldn't be able to go back and change their own caps like we've seen with the BCA uh, through the, the couple of bipartisan budget acts that we've had, but obviously that takes a lot more work and, and more time to get something like that done. Uh, another proposal that Mr. Trump had was to uh, reduce improper payments. Um, the estimate on that was that it could save around $300 billion over a decade. Uh, just last year, or 2015, GAO estimated that improper payments were around $137 billion. And as Tom mentioned, about three-fourths of that came from just three agencies. So that's a, a, a big problem. And when we talk about improper payments, um, that can be anything from, it's when federal funds go to the wrong recipient, the recipient receives an incorrect amount of funds, uh, the documentation to support the payment just was incorrect, or uh, the recipient uses the funds improperly. So those are a, a couple of things you can think about. Um, and one of the kind of pitfalls of, of going after improper payments is that the, the scoring of it, CBO has kind of not given a lot of credit for it. They don't, they're not gonna show this huge savings probably. And in some cases, they actually show a cost in the, in the run up to it the first few years. So that's something you have to kind of think about with that. Uh, Another proposal was kind of a rescissions package where you would go after 5% of unauthorized appropriations each year. And, and that's something I could maybe see getting some support. Uh, that would save somewhere around $150 billion over, over 10 years. And this kind of goes back to the bigger issue of unauthorized appropriations. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be going through regular order, passing a budget, 12 appropriations bills, uh, authorizing bills, all of that each year or are on authorizations at however many years they're required to be reauthorized. And so, you know, by doing that, you could really cut into a lot of the waste, I think, naturally, just by performing oversight and, and really carefully examining those issues each year. So that's something important to think about. Uh, in terms of will these cuts actually come to fruition? You know, it's just going to really depend on can he get buy-in from Congress? Will there be the will to work there? Um, a penny plan has had support, but you're still talking about a pretty major discretionary cut. A lot of these agencies uh, would, would face major cuts. So is that the best way to do it? Would it be better to kind of uh, more carefully target where the cut's from, have a bigger package? Uh, that's something to think about on that. Uh, just very quickly, recommendations for the GOP. Uh, I would say one thing they could do right away, just like I mentioned, what is to try to go back to regular order. Um, at the end of this year, we're gonna be facing, assuming that, that the 2017 omnibus bill is passed at the uh, current BBA level, you're gonna see a little cliff there. 
uh, when we dropped down uh, about $6 billion in, in 2018 under the BCA. So there's going to be a lot of pressure there to pass another BBA-type deal. Uh, Congress should really look to reject that and, and stick to the BCA level or come up with some kind of broader uh, sequester replacement package that, that makes cuts elsewhere, I think. Uh, I would also say that Congress should just carefully examine some of the uh, proposals that President-elect Trump has put forward, see where they have common ground, and see where they can, you know, work together and try to implement some of these things. And finally, I would just say that, you know, ultimately, you can only cut discretionary so much. Um, we have to have a conversation about broader entitlement reform, and, and maybe that's, maybe there's some area there for common ground moving forward, and, and that's something that we can see uh, happen. So. Thanks a lot to Justin. I'll try to be uh, quick in maybe six or seven minutes, so we have a little bit of time for questions. Um, thanks to the panelists today. Um, uh, I think this is uh, very much will be a topic in uh, coming years as, uh, as Trump comes into office and uh, sees the size of federal deficits and tries to figure out what to do about it. So the federal government has suffered from waste, fraud, and abuse for decades, even centuries. If you go back and look in the 19th century, some of the federal bureaucracies we had back then uh, the Post Office, the Bureau, Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Army Corps of Engineers, there was all kinds of complaints about waste, fraud, and abuse, and mismanagement, and corruption, and all those uh, agencies back in the 19th century, just like the sort of things we hear today. Uh, in recent decades, CAGW has been documenting the waste uh, uh, over and over for years. Uh, now we have Senator Lankford's uh, study. Um, so what, why do we get this waste decade after decade? Um, I described some of the fundamental reasons for this in the, in the handout study that was on your chair called Why the Federal Government Fails. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, go through some of those uh, fundamental reasons for failure and give you some examples um, from the Lankford study. So the first issue is just a dysfunctional bureaucracy. Uh, federal agencies, unlike private businesses, have really no incentive to control costs. They've got no incentive to improve quality. Federal agencies are monopolies. They don't face competition. Uh, there's essentially no pay for performance in the federal government. Crappy workers in the federal government get pay raises, just like the good workers. Uh, and it's impossible to fire federal workers. The firing rate in the federal government is only one-sixth sixth as big as the firing rate in the private sector. So the result of all of that, uh, like Langford uh, discusses, you know, there's no cost control. Uh, he talks about how the ATF bu uh, bought a fleet of drones that it doesn't use. Uh, the DOJ built some prisons it doesn't need. Uh, you get all kinds of waste because of those basic uh, dysfunctions in the bureaucracy. So a second issue is uh, the special interest spending problem. Uh, you know, Langford talks about some of the business subsidies and farm subsidies uh, in the federal uh, budget. So special interest spending is fueled by log rolling. Now, some uh, people may naively think that a legislature in a democracy only passes programs that have broad support uh, in the public, but that isn't true. A Congress passes programs that only have small minority support all the time because of log rolling. The solution to this is standalone votes on programs. But of course, the federal government has got so big now uh, we just can't have standalone votes on every program. The government's just too darn big. So the bigger the government gets, the more log rolling we have, the more special interest uh, programs that we have. A third issue uh, that Langford touches on in some of his examples are that federal aid to state programs are particularly wasteful. The federal government now spends $700 billion a year uh, on 1,100 different aid to state programs. We're talking about education programs, housing programs, community development programs, all of those. State and local governments get all this free money from Washington. They don't have an incentive to spend it frugally. They don't have an incentive uh, to minimize costs on these programs. Langford talks uh, at length about Medicaid. Classic example, uh, most Medicaid spending is paid for by the federal government. State governments simply do not have the incentive to crack down on the waste in that program. Uh, Langford uh, discusses a, a partial solution, which is block granting uh, aid to the states that would be a, a first good step forward. Uh, a better solution that I've written about extensively is to start eliminating federal aid to state programs. The uh, fourth uh, issue <clears throat> is that all these aid to state programs comes w come with piles of regulations attached to them. 
So Lankford, uh, in his comments today, talked about the food stamp program and how it comes with all these regulations that impose these costs on retailers. Uh, that's absolutely right, but that's just a microcosm of the broader problem. There's 1,108 state programs. They all come with regulations attached to them that impose costs on local governments and businesses and individuals. Uh, you know, the education, uh, all the education regulations that go along with the K-12 aid from the federal government are a good example of that. Again, the solution is to start repealing aid to state uh, programs. You get rid of the spending programs. You get rid of all the attached uh, regulations. So the fifth and final uh, uh, point I'm going to uh, uh, touch on here is that the federal government has just become too darn large to manage effectively. It's sort of an obvious point, but I don't think it gets enough focus in Washington. Federal government's $4 trillion a year. There's hundreds of agencies. There are literally thousands of programs in the federal government. Uh, it is far beyond the comprehension of members of Congress to oversee or properly manage this mass of federal programs and spending. And here's a, a, a statistic that I could find kind of startling. The federal budget of $4 trillion is 100 times the size of the average state uh, budget in the United States. So I live in Virginia. The state budget in Virginia is only $40 billion a year. Okay, they have a legislature to handle $40 billion of spending. Federal government budget is 100 times larger. So how the heck are they ever going to manage uh, and you know, handle all that spending or even understand what the federal government does? So uh, the massive federal government overwhelms policymakers. They don't have the time to oversee all these programs. Uh, the solution to it is the American federal system. State and local activities ought to be funded by state and local governments, and the federal government uh, got, ought to get out of those uh, activities. So to conclude, uh, on the campaign trail, Donald Trump said, uh, quote, uh, waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, here's what he said. He says, waste, fraud, and abuse all over the place. Uh, look at what's happening in every agency. Waste, fraud, and abuse. We will cut so much your head will spin, unquote. So, you know, Trump didn't say much about spending on the campaign trail, but what he did say was quite entertaining. Uh, I hope he follows through uh, on it. Uh, I think Trump will try to follow through on some of the sort of business-oriented reforms, like making it easier to fire federal workers, which would be a good step forward. But what we really need is structural reforms to the federal budget to terminate programs and to get the federal government out of properly state and local uh, activities. So those are my comments, and we're happy to have a few uh, questions now uh, if you want, and thanks a lot for, uh, for coming today.